Concord Matters is made possible in part by a generous gift from Set Apart to Serve, the church work recruitment initiative of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Many church workers always knew they wanted to serve in Christ's church, but many pastors, teachers, and other full-time church workers left careers to pursue this life of service. If you or a friend have been praying and thinking about a second career as a church worker, the Set Apart to Serve team wants to help. Visit kfuo.org slash SAS. That's kfuo.org slash SAS. Christ and welcome to Conqueror Matters, a show that seeks unity in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ by his word through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. As Peter boldly confessed of Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We boldly confess the truth of the entirety of God's inerrant word, nothing more, nothing less. And we do it all for the sake of a clear conscience in Christ. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for You, Anytime, Anywhere. We continue our studies in the Augsburg Confession with Article 26, the distinction of meats. This is one of those that you're like, hmm, how does that work? Are we looking at different kind of meats that we can eat? In our world today, we're kind of like, well, it's kind of weird. What's wrong with um, abstaining from certain foods. We would agree with that. We talk about fasting, stop eating gluten, don't eat too many carbs before bed, those kind of things. So what's the issue? Maybe this might be good for the church to get into. But the question is, does freedom in the gospel mean that we live and let leave and live and let live whatever you want to eat? Or is there something more going on? We'll look at that issue today and see what it means for us today and obviously keeping our eyes centered on Christ. So open up your book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Book of Concord, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ this morning, we welcome back the Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer of Wittenberg Academy. Pastor Ketchemeyer, welcome oh, back to Concord Oh, it is great Matters. to be here, great to be here. Well, Pastor, let's get right into it because, well, I'm, I have to admit this, and the more I read this, the more I got a little hungry to open up the grill and start grilling. Um, I don't know about you. Did you have that problem? I, now I do. I, I didn't before. But once you put a thought into somebody's mind, you, you can't get it out of his mind. So, yeah. I love it. But it is a very important reality that we don't want to kid around about because it is about a clear conscience in Christ. So I want to invite you, our listeners, to open up the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. And we are on page 50, Article 26, The Distinction of Meats. We'll begin with the note. As it says, Choosing not to eat particular foods or any food at all at particular times or on particular occasions is entirely a matter of Christian freedom. By the time of the Reformation, however, the church had devised complex regulations commanding abstinence from certain foods and certain days. Church teaching misled people into believing that by following such regulations, they merited God's grace and favor. Such a theory is entirely contrary to the gospel, overturns all sufficient merit of Jesus Christ, and replaces him with human works. Contrived laws such as these place enormous burdens on the common people 
who frequently considered themselves less spiritual than the monks and nuns who adhered to these dietary regulations very closely. Bodily discipline and working to curb one's sinful desire is entirely appropriate and necessary, but is never to be suggested that such activities earn God's grace. In highlighting the issue of dietary restrictions, the Augsburg Confession once more repeats that Lutherans do not do away with good traditions and practices, such as the order of Bible readings and the communion service, but only such things that take away from the gospel. Pastor Ketchumar, what's the main issue? Because as we hear this, even this title, it's a little bit weird to the ears nowadays, especially as Lutherans, as we speak about distinction of meats or what to eat or what not to eat. But what are are the main issues that were going on in order to have this confession? Well, I I think that even the title itself, distinction of meats, to understand that when you go back to the Lenten practices in the the time of the Reformation, uh, you're you're trying to distinguish between meats. You know, is it it okay to eat beef, right? Is it okay to eat chicken? Is it okay to eat pork? And they would say yes. Uh, that it's okay to eat it, except in the fasting time, right? Now you can't eat it, okay? Because remember, kosher laws in the Old Testament, you can't eat pork. You can't have the bacon, can't have the pork chops. You, you, you can't have this, this wonderful ham, right? But it, the distinction of meats there was, well, in Lent, you, you refrain from meats. And so now we're going to make a distinction and fish are okay, right? <laughs> so all of a sudden you have this, it's a distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pork, beef, a chicken, no fish, yes. And so you're trying to make this distinction. In the East, they made a distinction that basically said anything that has a backbone is meat. Uh, so I mean, that's you know, so you're trying to, well, what is it? Well, if fish have a backbone, okay, so I mean, what, what are you doing here? I mean, you're, you're trying to find this, what, what's the backbone, right? What's the backbone? How is it a meat? And so that's what you're looking at. And so uh, that, that's the issue of trying to distinguish meats. But that, that's really not the, the core theological issue uh, for us. The, the core theological issue is is going to be about the gospel. Uh, this is the whole idea, does it take away from the gospel? So the gospel is about the personal work of Christ. The gospel is about the good news of what Christ has done for us, that Jesus himself has made satisfaction for all of our sins. It's his work that he is the one who is obedient unto death, even death upon the cross. He's the one who knew no sin, but became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So it's when you're trying to emphasize this distinction of meats, you're trying to to emphasize this man-made methods of making God merciful, which is always idolatry. And so if you have a a man-made system here, a tradition that is going to take away from the gospel, the person and work of Christ, that's a problem because now it's stealing the glory that belongs rightfully to Jesus. And as soon as you you steal that glory from Jesus, you, you're, you're robbing the conscience of the comfort uh, that the the whole satisfaction of Christ gives you, that he alone has made satisfaction for sin. So it confuses the conscience because now the conscience is wondering, well, did I do enough? Do I need to do this? And the, the, these man-made traditions, these man-made rules and regulations, these ceremonial laws by men, not only is it the idea that you you have to do it, you are required to do it, or maybe you should do it, but you're required to do it, but even if you omit it, then it's sin. 
So if you refuse to do these man-made things, now that's sin. So th- this becomes a confusion in the conscience uh, itself. Uh, wh- wh- where do I stand with God? And so I think that's really at the heart of the whole uh, Reformation is the care for the soul. And that care for that conscience as a pastor, pastoral care, that the only way to give true comfort to the conscience is to preach Christ crucified. And this is where we get to the whole article of justification upon which the church stands or falls. And so everything is going to go back to this article of justification. How are we justified in God's eyes? Uh, What makes us right? What brings satisfaction and righteousness before God? Is it an active, achieved righteousness that we do by our works or self-chosen works? Or is it the work of Christ that uh, makes us righteous before God and we receive that passive righteousness by faith? So at the core of the entire Reformation, it's not merely uh, do you like fish or not, but, but at the core of this is the personal work of Christ obscuring his glory and, and, and just robbing the individual conscience of the only comfort you can have, that Jesus has made satisfaction for all sins, and his righteousness is imputed to us, and we receive this gift by faith. So do fish have a backbone? I'm trying to, no, I, I can't get past that. as you. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm joking, I'm joking, I apologize. Okay, Turn, this brings us back to, we'll read our confession, and what I want to read first is from, and it goes back to this, as Pastor said so well, it goes back to AC4, justification. If you turn with me to page 33 on, in the Book of Concord, it says these words. Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merit, or works. People are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and their sins are forgiven before Christ, for Christ's sake by his death. Christ made satisfaction for our sins, and God counts this faith for righteousness, this faith for righteousness in his sight. So I I highly encourage you, our listeners, to keep that always in your back pocket, and then turn with me to page 51, because this first section, number one on this, is something I think that we need to make sure we're very clear on, and Pastor has definitely brought us right to the forefront of it, to make sure that we understand these terms and what the main issue is. So I'm going to read just number one on page 51 of article 26. Not only the people, but also those teaching in the churches have generally been persuaded to believe in making distinctions between meats and similar human traditions. They believe these are useful works for meriting grace and are able to make satisfaction. No, Pastor, once again, going to another food, I can't get no satisfaction. I usually think of Snickers, um, to be quite honest. So this is where we can get, we don't use that language very well. I'm satisfied. We usually talk about I. it, it was good on the mm. palate. But when it comes to faith, we don't talk about satisfaction. Can you, can you break that down for well, us? Well, I, I think that when we understand about satisfaction, it's not about what satisfies me. It's not my personal desires or my personal appetite or my personal taste. I mean, that, yeah, we talk about satisfying. It was that hamburger satisfying. I mean, it was that cook to your uh, pleasure, right? But, but what we're really talking about here is a theological understanding of what makes satisfaction to the demandments of the law. I mean, that's the key here. Uh, what, what God himself sees as 
that which makes him satisfied with what is required by the law. So it's not just an external observation of the law, but also the internal uh, observation. So you can't just externally say that, hey, I've never murdered anybody today. I'm a pretty good guy. But you go internally. Yeah, but did you hate your brother in your heart? Because that's already murder. And so that satisfaction is God's demands of the law. And I, I think what's really helpful for us to understand is this really goes back to the, the beginning of the 95 Theses in 1517, where Luther is nailing the 95 Theses on the castle door in Wittenberg. Uh, these 95 Theses has to do with the plenary indulgences. And, and let me un- explain here just a little bit. An indulgence, of course, is going to be the idea of something that makes satisfaction. Okay, so I mean, so keep it in, in mind that that's that that realm of satisfaction. And so when you talk about a plenary indulgence, it is a complete and full making satisfaction for everything. So when, when you're looking at a, a satisfaction, you would go to the priest and you would confess your sins. And of course, we're talking about uh, penance, uh, about going private confession and absolution, what we talk about. I mean, with Lutherans, we, we talk about private confession and absolution, individual confession and absolution, that the two parts, you confess your sins, you receive the absolution. But in Roman Catholicism, when they're thinking about uh, penance, the sacrament of penance is defined by Augustine, you're looking at three components of penance, that sacrament of penance. Now, remember, in the 95 Theses, Luther is saying that this word penance is, is a life of repentance. It's not a one-time deal that you go to the sacrament sacrament of of penance, and you receive the requirement, the prescription of what you are to do to satisfy your sins. I mean, that's that whole area. And then an indulgence or a plenary indulgence, it's saying that everything is made satisfied. Everything's good with God. But with Augustine, he's looking at the three parts of the sacrament of penance like this, contrition, confession of your sins, okay? So you're contrite, you're, you're remorseful, you're, you're sorry, you want to do better, you, you confess the sin. But the third component is that satisfaction. And so how does a person make satisfaction? Well, then Augustine then makes a distinction in three ways of, of making satisfaction. And, and I think this is helpful for us to even understand the idea of a good work. What's a good work? Because the understanding of a satisfaction is now you do a work to make satisfaction for what you did wrong. You do something good to counteract what you did wrong. It's like a transaction. It's like a monetary transaction. You have a debit. Now you need to give a credit into the credit column. So that satisfaction, prescribed satisfaction that you'd be doing would be in these three areas, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Okay, so in those three categories of making satisfaction, the the category of prayer is something that has to do with your soul. So it's for you individually with your soul. Uh, It's the spiritual condition of your soul. And therefore, what you're talking about is hearing God's word. Okay. So when you have the category of prayer, it's hearing God's word, being in conversation with God, uh, the, receiving the preaching and teaching and meditating upon God, God's word and responding in prayer. So that's that's seen as a good work. That's something that would make satisfaction. Uh, so this is, I mean, it's, it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a good thing, right? It's a good work. But, but they're viewing it as it makes satisfaction. It makes up for a deficiency in what you did. Or number two, the category of fasting. Okay, that's the category kind of what we're talking about right here. And so instead of uh, uh, prayer having to do with the soul, fasting has to do with the body. And this is where we get to the language of the mortification of the flesh. And so it's for your own self. And so what you're trying to subdue the body, uh, body subdue the flesh. So you, you have the vigils where you're not sleeping, you're praying, you're, you're staying up. Okay, uh, and so that's the visuals, uh, vigils, uh, these uh, clothing, 
uh, these man-made works like fasting or other kinds of pilgrimages, or maybe even the kind of you, you, you sleep on the hard floor or something because you're trying to whip your body into shape and tell your body that you control things. So your soul is telling the body that, hey, I'm in control, not you, not the desires of the flesh. And so you're subduing. That's that mortification of the flesh. Now, the third category is almsgiving. So now the first category of prayer is for your own self, your own soul. The second category of fasting is for the mortification of your own flesh. But this third category of almsgiving, this is where you do good for your neighbor. These are acts of mercy so that bodily, now you turn toward your neighbor. Physically, you're helping your neighbor out. And so the almsgiving is just, it's a way that uh, you categorize this, that it's you give of your blessings. So you, you have a wealth and you give to those who are less fortunate. And so it can be other ways too, like uh, any other works of mercy, like if you have an ability or skill that somebody else doesn't have, they're deficient in it, you could serve them by helping. So this is that category of serving neighbor. But these are these three understandings of what makes satisfaction for sin. Because when you're talking about penance and you come and you confess your sin to your father confessor and you said, I did this wrong. Now he's like a, like a medical physician, but he's a spiritual physician and he's trying to determine, okay, the ailment and he's trying to, to prescribe uh, what, the, what, what the, the cure is for this. And so the cure is you do something to make satisfaction for something you did wrong. You say, I did this wrong. And he says, now you go and do that to make things right. So that's that understanding of satisfaction. But I think that as Lutherans, when you, you look at those categories, those three categories of, of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, we can see those as categories of good works. I mean, so th- there's, they're not bad things to do, but we want to be clear, they do not merit or earn God's favor. They do not make one righteous before God. So that's where we always want to make that distinction. Yes, these are good works, but they don't make satisfaction for sin. In fact, as we as Lutherans, we do understand this idea of the mortification of the flesh. But we would even add, I would say, a fourth category uh, when we would talk about what's a good work. And one of them is the, the Holy Cross of Suffering. That not only should you do the the category of prayer or fasting and almsgiving, but also endure the suffering of the cross that God has custom built and and put on your back. And so especially that last one with enduring suffering with the cross, this is where we see faith as active and alive. So this is where we make that good confession that God is good, even though in life it doesn't seem like God's good, that we know that God is in control, even though it it seems by our experience that maybe God's not in control. So we as Lutherans would kind of add that as as a fourth category of good works, of actually enduring in faith in the midst of this fallen world that's falling apart. So, I mean, that's where we want to understand this idea of satisfaction. But even when we get to the idea of of meriting or earning grace, I mean, we, we also have to keep in mind the way that the medieval philosophers were thinking about grace. I mean, grace is kind of this this infused like substance that you would be filled with grace that would enable you to do things. And then even when they did that, they had to say, well, okay, you could merit, uh, you could merit in a couple of different ways. The merit of congruity is that which a sinful person does for himself. So you say, here's a good work and you're doing that, but does that satisfy God? No, because a sinful person is doing only a merit of congruity. 
The other merit is a merit of condignity. And so the idea is, well, this is what a righteous person or a just person does for himself or even for others. And it's with the help of this infused grace, and then you have a merit of condignity. But then, of course, they get all confused about all of this, and they say, well, a person could do a merit of congruity and then actually earn... a merit of condignity. And so it's all confusing, but basically the merit of congruity is you're doing it out of fear. And the merit of condignity is that you are doing this out of love. I mean, so you're trying to make this distinction. Melanchthon goes ballistic on this in the apology and says, this just confuses consciences. That's what this all does. And so we have a different understanding of what grace is. Grace is not an infused substance. Uh, Grace, of course, is imputed to us. It's God's favor for the sake of Christ. So if it's God's free gift of favor, we're favored in God's sight because of the personal work of Christ, because what he's done to satisfy the law, then it's not about grace being something that we're filled with, which enables us to satisfy the demands of the law. So I think all of this must be kept in mind, which always goes back to the article of justification upon which the church stands or falls. Mm -hmm. So that's why even this distinction of meats becomes an issue, because the distinction of meats is about what I do, what I choose to do. Do I choose to eat fish? Do I choose to eat a hamburger during the season of Lent? Uh, Do I, uh, back in the Middle Ages, you couldn't even eat dairy products. I mean, so anything that came from a cow uh, uh, also would be considered part of this fasting from meat. And that's why you you have to get rid of the butter and the cheese and everything uh, before. And that's why you have the fat, uh, what is it, Fat Tuesday right before uh, Ash Wednesday, because Mm -hmm. you're trying to consume all this extra dairy product. <laughs> you, know, you couldn't even eat eggs. I mean, so that was the whole idea. But, but this is why this goes back to the article of justification, because now the emphasis is on man-made works. And remember, we keep traditions for the sake of order. I mean, so we as Lutherans, we, we gladly keep the traditions of the church, but it's for the sake of order and for the purpose of teaching faith and love. And so when you, you, you lose the understanding of, of teaching faith and love, faith in Christ, and that it's God loved us first, therefore we are to love others. If you lose all of that, then you think that it's something that you do to earn merit, grace, God's favor, or it's something that you're doing to make the satisfactions for the demands of the law. So as we look at this, it really is keeping everything simple. And this is like I said at the introduction, that as we look at the confessions, it is continually bringing us back to faith and our salvation on account of Christ. This is like he's dressing what was needed in those days. But as Pastor Ketchumar said so well, is there's a point where you just got confused. And you're like, so so am I am I forgiven or not? And they're like, well, well, well let's talk about this. I'm like, well, okay, wait. Our goal is to continually point people back to Christ. So I keep that, keep that as he said so beautifully today, is keep that as the main thing. Cause we get start getting distinctions of backbones and meats <laughs> and butter and all these kind of things. How often will we just get lost? The cross will be lost. And so that's where I encourage you, our listeners, we might not have the same exact thing in this, but we have something similar because we're always trying to sneak in our works for our salvation. But we need to keep going here. We're at number two of page 51, and uh, we'll go all the way to number seven. From this, there developed a view that new ceremonies, new orders, new holy days, and new fastings were instituted daily. Teachers in the church required these works as a necessary service to merit grace. 
They terrified people's consciences when they left any of these things out. Because of this viewpoint, the church has suffered great damage. First, the chief part of the gospel, the doctrine of grace and of righteousness, of faith, has been obscured by this view. The gospel shall stand out as the most prominent teaching in the church in order that Christ's merit may be well known and faith which believes that sins are forgiven for Christ's sake be exalted far above works. Therefore, Paul also lays the greatest stress on this article, putting aside the law and human traditions in order to show that Christian righteousness is something other than such works, Romans 14. Christian righteousness is the faith that believes that sins are freely forgiven for Christ's sake, but this doctrine of Paul has been almost completely smothered by traditions, which have produced the opinion that we must merit grace and righteousness by making distinction in meats and similar services. When repentance was taught, there was no mention of faith. Only works of satisfaction were set forth, and so repentance seemed to stand entirely on these works. Now, Pastor, with about a minute left in our time, one of the main themes that I've been noticing with our guests over the last 10 articles or so is that even though they're addressing the subject of which the title is, majority of the article brings us back to justification by faith. And it says here, first, the chief part of the gospel has been obscured by his this view. So Melanchthon is very concerned about it. With about a minute left before our break, uh, break this down a little bit. Yeah, so you obscure, I mean, you're kind of, you're blurring this understanding of the person and work of Christ. So instead of looking to Jesus as your savior, as the one who alone makes satisfaction for sin, uh, you're looking elsewhere. And so instead of his works, you're looking to your own works, your own self-chosen works, or those who are uh, the works that are imposed upon you by others, by the church itself. So that obscuring, it's it's taking away from Jesus. It's robbing uh, Jesus of the glory that's rightfully due his name. So Jesus is the mediator between man and God. Jesus is the high priest. And when you obscure it, you don't see Jesus as your mediator before God. Now you look possibly for other mediators, which the other saints or even the Virgin Mary. And so you're looking for other mediators instead of Jesus. So that's robbing Jesus of his glory. Or you're looking to yourself and your own works instead of the works of Jesus. That's robbing Jesus of his glory. Well, I want to talk more about that on the other side of our break. We are studying Article 26 of the Augsburg Confession on the distinction of meats, and we'll be right here. Many church workers always knew they wanted to serve in Christ's church, but for some, the passion to become a pastor, teacher, deaconess, or other full-time church worker came later in life. Leaving a career to pursue this life of service is not without challenges, yet these are sacred and joyous vocations unlike any other. Set apart to serve, the Church Work Recruitment Initiative of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate is here to help. Visit kfuo.org SAS to learn how you can put your experience and skills to work through full-time service in Christ's church. That's kfuo.org SAS. Welcome back. We are studying and confessing the truth of Scripture from the Augsburg Confession, particularly Article 26 on the distinction of meats with Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer of Wittenberg Academy. Now, Pastor, you'll notice, I mean, you, our listeners, you'll notice that there's three points as you look at number four, and we go to number eight, and we go to number 12. There's three points that is focused here. And the first one is 
making sure that, pointing out that the gospel was obscured. Now, we can kind of look at this in percentages. We love percentages in America. Is well, 75% of people like this, or 75% chance of this, or 25% chance of this. Um, what's the real issue if the gospel's obscured? Because if you have like a 90% gospel, that sounds pretty good to me, Pastor. What would you say? <laughs> yeah, well, well th- th- let's get to the term satisfaction. Okay. What, what, is, what is the satisfaction? <laughs> the requirement of satisfaction is 100%. Uh, so what, what satisfies, uh, what satisfies the demands of the law is the 100% work of Christ. And uh, so the same thing, what, what, what is satisfaction, if you will, uh, of the pure gospel, the purity of the gospel, which alone points to Jesus, which alone says for his sake, we now are righteous before God by faith. And so even as this was kind of closing here, notice that this language of repentance, when repentance was taught. So remember, we kind of first started about that that whole uh, uh, understanding from St. Aquinas, uh, that St. Aquinas has these three parts of the sacrament of penance. So when we're talking about repentance, we're talking about this sacrament of penance. Uh, and again, with the 95 Theses, that first thesis is when our Lord and Master Jesus said to repent, it was a life of repentance, not the sacrament of penance. All right. So you're in that state of repentance. But when the Lutherans came forward and said that we, you know, we continue this individual confession absolution, the component of the absolution is you receive the good word, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance that satisfaction has been paid before God for the sake of Jesus. And faith clings to this. So this is why he's saying that there was no mention made of faith, because if you don't have the absolution, it's it's just it's your satisfaction. So it's the idea that once you make satisfaction, you do the prescribed penance, then you're good with God. Everything, the, the ledger is made right. I mean, it's, it's a business or monetary transaction. You are doing something for God. Now he's obligated to do something for you. <laughs> but it's, it's only these works of satisfaction were set forth. So this is how you make satisfaction for what you did wrong instead of understanding the gospel, that this is what Jesus did to make satisfaction what, for what you did wrong. He's the only high priest. He's the only mediator. So, I mean, that, that's, again, at the core of the whole issue of the Reformation is the person and work of Christ, which that glory is being robbed from him. And then as soon as you, you obscure this gospel, uh, this is where you go into these other two categories of obscuring the commandments of God and obscuring the comfort that's given to the conscience. Well, let's get to that second part, number eight, because I like how you said that, that if you're obscuring the gospel, you're also going to obscure the law or the rest of God's word, because there is this argument, and I want to get to it after this section. There's this argument, well, that doesn't affect the gospel. Therefore, we can kind of skirt or kind of question that part of scripture, which is very prominent, I would say, in our world today. And it fits into what we're speaking of today, because if you say, well, you can't eat that meat on that day. And you're like, where is that in the Bible? Well, it's just a good practice. Then your hope is in something that's actually not even scriptural. And other times people say, well, this is what the Bible says. But you know what? That doesn't count because it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't affect the gospel. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, if you get the gospel wrong, you can get God's law wrong. If you obscure all of it, then there's re- you're left with nothing. So let's get to the second point. Number eight. Second, these traditions have hindered God's commandments. Because traditions were placed far above God's commandments. Christianity was sought to stand wholly on the observance of certain holy days, rites, fasts, and vestments. 
These observances won the exalted title of the spiritual life and the perfect life. Meanwhile, God's commandments, according to each one's vocation or calling, were without honor. These works include the father raising his children, a mother bearing children, a prince governing the commonwealth. These were considered to be worldly and thus imperfect works, far below the glittering observances of the church. This error greatly tormented people with devout consciences. They grieved that they were held in an imperfect state of life, as in marriage, as in the office of ruler, or in other civil services. They admired the monks and others like them. They falsely thought that these, people, these people's observances were more acceptable to God. Pastor, he speaks very clearly about the, the callings, the vocation of each individual, and he speaks about consciences. Um, can you kind of put those together and what he's really focusing well, on? Well, the issue again at this time was that the understanding of a spiritual calling, okay, a calling from God, uh, that that was only in the realm of uh, being a monk or a nun. Or, of course, if you were a man, you could go beyond being a nun. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me reframe that. If you, I'm getting confused, so today is even confusing me. Right? If you were a man, you could go beyond being a monk to a priest right, or even a bishop. So that was a spiritual calling for you. If you were a woman, you only had the op- opportunity of becoming a nun. That was a spiritual vocation. Uh, and what Luther does is says, well, wait a minute. The scripture itself is the place where God institutes such things as marriage. So marriage itself comes from the voice of God, and God is the one who makes that a spiritual calling. And so this is where Luther is placing the vocation of a husband and a wife okay, in line with God's word. And because it's God's word, God's word alone makes holy. So if God institutes marriage with his voice, with his word, it is a holy estate. So it's a holy calling to be a husband and wife. And then, of course, when you have children, this is from God because God makes a marriage and he blesses marriage to be fruitful and multiply. We know that God is the author of life. He's the one who gives life. So God gives the gift of life to a, a husband and a wife. Now they have the spiritual calling from God, or vocation of being father and mother. So this comes from God's word, and it's God's word that makes holy. And so Luther is saying that's a holy calling. And so as a Christian, as a baptized believer, you have a holy calling where God has placed you to be of service to your neighbor. So being baptized, you are holy, you are a saint. And in that age of the Middle Ages, the concept was that you just have average Christians, okay, and you want to be a super Christian. So that's why you would want a spiritual calling. But Luther would say the average person is a spiritual Christian. I mean, there's no, you can't make this distinction, this man-made distinction of what is more spiritual than the other. So the idea of clothing, I mean, when we were talking about the, uh, what you wear in that category of fasting of making satisfaction is your clothing. So like a monk would put on kind of maybe some really itchy clothes or something. And so that would make the monk more holy 
if you will, because he's in a holy order. Or if you are a priest, you're ordained and you're wearing the chasuble, okay, you're more holy because you're in a holy order. And so Luther's saying that these observance of these things, like the clothing or the vestments, that's not what makes a person holy. It's God's word that makes holy. So when you're talking in the, the realm of holy days that are man-made, uh, days that are set, set apart as something separate, like the day that we, we observe so that we think about the life of a saint in the past, the whole reason why we observe that and look to the saints of old is to remind us and to teach us about faith. That first of all, that saint is a saint because of Christ. And so in Christ, you are a new creation and there is no condemnation. You have been made holy in the waters of holy baptism. It's the word of God that makes you holy. So that's what the saint has faith. And then, of course, the life of the saint, that faith is made manifest in good works. So it would, it would teach you to emulate not only the good works of the saint, but also the faith of the saint. Because without the faith, there's no real good works in God's sight, because it's impossible to please God without faith. And so this is why Luther will uh, uh, address these things about vocation. And this is why in the Augsburg Confession, we are addressing this teaching of Luther here to understand clearly about the, the works of a father raising his child, a mother bearing children, or even a prince governing the commonwealth, because that's, that's the estate that God has established in Genesis chapter 9, where you have the civil government. Uh, you have these three estates, you have the ecclesiastical, you have the domestic estate of the household and marriage, but then you also have the civil government that is established by God in Genesis chapter 9. And it's through God's voice, it's through God's calling that God has set this into order. So it is a holy order because it's God's holy word. So even a prince, when he's serving in that vocation as a Christian, uh, he is holy. Okay, you can't become holier than Christ, more holy than Christ. You can't become more sanctified than Christ. And so in, in Christ, you have his righteousness and his holiness. And so that's going to be the key here. And what you're doing is you're, you're setting God's commandments to the side as if they are insignificant, that God tells us to honor our father and our mother as a vocation as a mm -hmm. child, because all of us have that calling when we are conceived in our mother's womb and we're born, we're all children. And so we have that holy ordering by God's holy word, honor father and mother is what we are to do, but you're setting it aside. And then instead you're taking up a man-made commandment and saying, leave your father and mother and go join a convent and become a nun if you're a woman female, because there is a distinction. Or if you're a man, male, there is a distinction. You go into a monastery. And so you leave your father and mother. And so it's this, God says, honor father and mother. And you say, no, no, go find a different ordering in your life. Go and take a vow of obedience to the abbot or the mother superior and put yourself under another order that actually makes you holy. So this is obscuring the commandments of God. And so now instead of the commandments of God, uh, they're just seen as something that's secular. It's something that the average person does. Man-made commandments are taking the place of God's commandments as if that is more important than God's commandments itself, that that's what makes a person holy in God's sight is these man-made commandments, uh, the commandments of holy days or rites or fasting or, of course, of vestments. And so that's kind of this whole category that we're talking here is about obscuring the commandments of God and replacing them with man-made commandments. And man-made commandments can, can never assure the conscience that you're doing right in God's sight. Uh, and you never know if you've done enough. And because the, the conscience is always gauging how you're thinking, 
uh, what you're speaking and what you're acting, what you're doing. And so the conscience is gauging that. But the problem is the conscience makes a connection between you as the creature and the creator. And by nature, we all have that conscience with the natural law written on it. But what happens in society is that we, in, in our culture, the culture cultivates different rules and regulations that can override what natural law says. But you need God's mm -hmm. word, God's commands to reset the conscience to be in line with God's will rather than being in line with the will of the culture. And, and so this is really what you have with uh, these man-made rules and regulations is now you have a society that's saying this is what makes one holy, but it's separate and apart from God's word. So now it, it's causing this confusion in the conscience. Uh, so how am I right with God? How do I as a creature connect with God through my conscience? Well, the society is now it's deforming the conscience. And so that's where we get into that third category. I want to break this down a little bit as far as our current culture, because you really have captured it, is part of the issue is our conscience can be misled. It needs to be informed, of course, by the word of God. So give you an example. My grandmother was a, a wonderful, pious Christian woman. She grew up in a Norwegian church body. And in the church body, she grew up and it basically said, you can't dance, you can't smoke, and you can't drink. And so those are the kind of things that how do you define what it is to be a good Christian was defined by those things. Now, clearly, there are idolatry issues that can come with these things. There's um, gluttony and so forth that can happen with these things as well, drunkenness. But it, it kind of became this idea of a super Christian. A super Christian doesn't do those yes. things. And so then all of a sudden, you know, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And, and then if you all of a sudden are around a, a Christian that smokes... You would just look at them and go, they don't believe, they don't, they're not a good Christian. And a lot of times, then that would become the hope. Now, my grandmother was a very biblical, you know, Christian, confessing Christ type person. But you see how quickly that can happen because that same church body that had more strict rules than our beloved LCMS back in the day. And she said the Germans were just kind of lax in all their <laughs> beliefs. That same church body has changed marriage, changed uh, morality, changed all of these things, all these years. And you're like, how did this happen? Well, the rules they had weren't based on the Bible either, and the new rules that they're making up aren't based yes, on the Bible yes. as well. So it's that kind of stuff that I see, the super Christian idea. If it's not based on the Word of God, then you're clearly just going to go down another road at any moment because it wasn't on the Word of God right, to begin right. with. Right, Well, I, I think that you know each one of us had the old Adam. You know, As the baptized, we are daily drowning the old Adam. We're putting to death the sinful nature, that sinful nature that keeps rising up. I mean, it keeps coming back alive in us, and then it actually produces actual sin. But we put to death the old Adam, we drown it. But I think we also put to death the old Pharisee in us. And so there's a tendency in all of us to be Pharisees, and the Pharisees are not fair, you see, because what they do is they always put others under judgment because you don't meet my standard of holiness. I mean, so when we talk about a Pharisee being a hypocrite, it's really from the, the understanding of the Greek word hypocrino to put under hippo. Crino is judgment. I mean, so you're putting under judgment. And so what the Pharisees are doing, they're not being fair, you see, because they're looking at others saying, you don't meet my standards of righteousness. And that, that's always the issue of pietism. So piety is good. I mean, so if you, out of your own pious devotion to God, choose to do these things, uh, it, it's not bad, right? Because that falls into the category category of the mortification of the flesh. Um, so you, you talk about drinking. I mean, we shouldn't be drunkards, right? And so if somebody says, out of my personal piety, I'm not going to drink at all. 
okay, th- th- that's fine because you're saying I'm not going to let my flesh take control uh, of my soul and tell me what to do by being uh, drunken and not really knowing what I'm doing. So we as Christians, we ought to be sober minded. So if you do that, in your own personal piety, that's fine. But the issue at, at hand is always going to be that inner Pharisee in us is always going to want to awaken and arise and be alive and judge others and put others under judgment because they don't meet your criteria of holiness. So, I mean, that's the whole issue of fasting. If you choose to fast, I mean, that's good. You, you're abstaining from food because you're trying to subdue the body, the mortification of the flesh. But there's going to be this natural tendency to then think that you are making satisfaction for your sins, that you are more holy than somebody else who does not do that. And that's always going to be this issue at the Reformation with the so-called holy orders. That's the spiritual vocation. But I'm just a, a father, a mother, a husband, a wife. And so it's just, it's secular. It's just, it's below average. It's not really spiritual. So that, that's always going to be the key here. And we can do that in other um, ways of life as well. For example, well, you're just a pastor at a church. Versus, I was a missionary. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. um, you know, um, and it can go into very a whole bunch of different things. The problem is not necessarily what people are doing; they're fulfilling their yes. vocations. But it's good for you, our listeners, to realize that the question should be: How can I um, live in the grace of Christ and fulfill what God has called me to do? You know, according according to God's word, of course, don't make stuff up. It's too confusing. <laughs> That's one of the things I'm learning today. It's just too confusing. Otherwise, go back to the plain text, go back to what our confessions say. And it always goes back to Christ and fulfilling the vocations that he's put in front of us every single day. Obviously, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. So let's continue on. Our main goal today is to go through these three points that Melanchthon has laid out and then see where the Lord leads us. So we are number 12 on page 51, where he makes the third point. Third, traditions brought great danger to consciences. It was impossible to keep all traditions, <laughs> and yet people considered these observances to be necessary acts of worship. Gerson writes that many peop- many fell into despair, and that some even took their own lives, because they felt that they were not able to satisfy the traditions. All the while, They had never heard about the consoling righteousness of faith and grace. We see that academics and theologians gather the traditions and seek ways to relieve and ease consciences. They do not free consciences enough, but sometimes entangle them even more. The schools and sermons have been so occupied with gathering these traditions that they do not even have enough leisure time to touch the scripture on scripture. They do not pursue far, excuse me, pursue far more useful doctrine of faith, the cross, the dignity of secular affairs, the consolation of severely tested consciences. Therefore, Gerson and some other theologians have complained sadly that because of the striving after traditions, they were prevented from giving attendance, attention to better kind of doctrine. Augustine forbids the people's consciences should be burdened. He prudently advises Denarius, that he must know that they are to be observed the things that neither commanded by God nor forbidden, for such are their works. Therefore, teachers must not be regarded as having taken up this matter rashly or from hatred of the bishops, as some falsely suspect. There was a great need to warn the churches of these errors that arose from misunderstandings of the, misunderstanding the traditions. 
The gospel compels us to insist on the doctrine of grace, the righteousness of faith in the churches. This cannot be understood if people think that they merit grace by observances of their own choice. So we get to traditions, which we all know there's plenty of tradition in our churches, but what's his main point? Well, you know, here's where we get to this term adiaphora, uh, where we, we as Lutherans will say adiaphora. Uh, that's adiaphora. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, it's neither commanded by God, nor is it forbidden by God. And so that's the issue we, we want to really address here. Is, is it in God's word? Does God command it? Uh, does God forbid it? I mean, when we look at the Ten Commandments and the Catechism, we're, we're taking each a commandment, we're, we're echoing back and forth, what does this mean? We should fear and love God, you know, uh, that constantly, fear and love God, because it's God's command. And so God tells us what is required of us, and God tells us what is forbidden for us to do. Uh, that's the commandments of God. So when you look at the commandments of man, is this actually required by God? So this is going to be an issue with the conscience, because you, you look at the Ten Commandments and it says, do this, but now you're going beyond that, and you've got to figure out all the other besides the Ten Commandments. What are all the new the latest uh, commandments that the church is bringing upon us. And so you've got to follow all the commandments. That's the way you need a canon lawyer so that the canon lawyer can, can make sure that everybody's following the, the law of the land of the church, that is. So, you know, the church keeps making new orders, new laws, new rituals, new rules, regulations. And so that, that's going to be, your conscience is going to be troubled by this and confused. Am I doing the latest thing that I'm supposed to be doing? So now I've got to go study that instead of studying God's word. Is it, is it forbidden for me to do such things? You know, and so am I omitting it? it? It's a sin because I omit it. I mean, this is the whole quandary that the conscience is in. Now the conscience is so confused because remember the conscience is going to connect the creature to the creator. And it is an instrument that kind of is gauging these things. It's measuring these things. And it, broad, it draws you before the tribunal of God, the judgment seat of God. And so the conscience is there drawing you before the judgment seat of God. Have you made satisfaction for what God demands in his law? And when you got these man-made rules and regulations, your conscience is never sure because there's a measuring tool. It will the conscience will never be satisfied. I mean, to use this language of satisfaction, because to be satisfied, you have to do these things perfectly, both externally and internally. So then you're asking yourself, okay, when I did this, did I do this out of the right uh, disposition of my heart? Was it out of love or was it out of fear? And when, when you get this, was it out of love of God, out of fear of God? But now when you get in the category of man-made rules and regulations, how does that even fit into this? Am I following the man-made rules and regulations out of love for God or out of fear of God? Or is it out of love for the man-made uh, rulers? Or uh, is it out of love of the man-made so this just it puts your conscience in a complete confusion, and now your, your conscience is disturbed. But it's only the gospel that can give you assurance and peace in the conscience because of Christ. I mean, being justified by faith, we now have peace with God. This is peace in the conscience because we know that Christ alone has made satisfaction for sins, and we cannot make satisfaction for sin. Christ alone has earned merit favor with God. We cannot earn or merit favor with God. And so the conscience, when it keeps hearing all these new man-made rules and regulations, it's never going to be satisfied because it knows you've never completely satisfied it. 
As we look at this, it also has scriptural account. If you will look on page 52, we go to number 25 or so, and it speaks about Colossians 2. And this was fascinating to me because we can make it sound like, well, this kind of, this started with the, the Catholic Church, and thankfully it ended with the Catholic Church. Like, well, actually, this is kind of a, a human problem because we're always trying to find ways that we um, can make satisfaction. As it says in Colossians 2, verse 16, this is on page 52, on number 25, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a Sabbath. And again, if Christ, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do not submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Clearly in this church at that time, this this was an issue. Um, and why is this such an issue throughout <laughs> all of humanity, Pastor? Well, you see, it, it's unlocking that inner Pharisee that's not fair, you see. I mean, every one of us by nature, we want to <laughs> judge others according to what we do. We want to make ourselves right in our own sight. We want to justify ourselves. So we do what we do because we like to do what we do. And then we look at others and say, well, they're not as good as I am because it makes you feel better about yourself. And then it's, it's a false assurance that if, if I feel better than others, then I must be doing good before God's eyes. So even look at this mm. Colossians passage here. It's about let no one pass judgment. I mean, that's the whole issue of the Pharisees. They're passing judgment upon others. They're putting others under judgment. And that's why when you go back to Matthew 15, which is also addressed here, where, where Jesus is addressing the Pharisees from Isaiah chapter 29, it's this whole understanding to the Pharisees. He's saying that you are the ones who, with your lips, you're honoring me. Okay, with your mouths, you are teaching the, these commandments of man, but you're drawing near to me. I mean, that, that, that's that you're drawing near with your mouth. You, your lips are, are saying you honor me, but your heart is far from me because of these commandments of man. That's going to be the issue. And so it's not what and when Jesus addresses us in Matthew, it's not what one puts into the mouth that defiles. It's what comes out of the heart. So it's an issue of a heart. The only way to make the heart right, the only way to make the conscience right with God is the personal work of Christ. Again, the, the conscience gauges your own works. And the problem is you try to misuse and abuse the idea of the conscience and you try to turn it around and gauge others. I mean, we talk about the, the three uses of the law. We talk about the curb, the mirror, and the guide. Well, there's a so-called fourth use of the law, if you will. It's the telescope. You know, you can... <laughs> Take that telescope and look way over there at somebody else, and then you can judge them on what they're doing. So you're misusing the law as a telescope, right? Or even a microscope, if you will. Now you're taking under scrutiny all the actions of another person. So you're trying to judge another person. Now that's wrong, of course, uh, but that, that that's the issue here at hand. It's that you're, you're trying to do something to make yourself satisfied to satisfy your own conscience, but you can't, you can't do that. And, and that's the whole issue of the gospel is the gospel cannot measure the works of Jesus. I, I mean, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Uh, if we go back, the conscience, the problem with the conscience is the conscience is a tool that measures. The conscience cannot measure the works of Jesus. And so the, the conscience needs to hear the gospel. Because the gospel itself overrides a conscience. So I, I, I correct myself on what I said, misspoke before, but it's, yeah. it's the gospel that needs to override the ruling of the conscience to assure you with the comfort that Jesus is the one who's made satisfaction. So I want to turn your attention in the last few minutes here. On page 53, you go to number 40, 
he brings us all back as as we have covered over and over again. The conscience needs to hear the gospel. These traditions need to be um, kept with the understanding of faith in Christ being our source of hope. And number 40, he says, Nevertheless, we keep many traditions that are leading to good order, 1 Corinthians 14, in the church, such as the order of Scripture, lessons in the Mass, the chief holy days. At the same time, at the same time, we warn people that such observations do not justify us before God, and that it is not sinful if we omit such things without causing offense. The fathers knew of such freedom and human ceremonies. In the East, they kept Easter at another time than Rome. When the Romans accused the Eastern Church of schism, they were told by others that such practices do not need to be same everywhere, and so forth. Pastor, as we look at this with about a minute left in our time, it is something that was over and over and over again is that we keep the traditions, but we keep our eyes focused on the gospel. Our consciences need to be soothed. But this is messy work, <laughs> to say that. Working in the church and the daily walk with the Lord is very difficult. So, Pastor, with a minute left in our time, how will you encourage our listeners that in faith they may have a clear conscience before their Lord every single day? Well, we all know that the conscience it, it can arise and make us feel guilty, uh, ashamed. And what when that happens, it, the conscience is going to try to overrule our minds, and it's going to keep us there uh overthinking this over and over again, I've done wrong and I deserve God's uh, condemnation. And so this is where we keep going back to the gospel and we need to hear the gospel about the personal work of Christ that he has made full satisfaction for sin. So yes, it is true. Your conscience is right. You are guilty. Yes, it is true. Your conscience is right. Uh, you should be ashamed. Uh, but what we have is the gospel, then it sets that conscience to the side and says, now listen to Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Uh, take heart. I've overcome. And so that, that's the key here is that you listen to the words of Jesus, that you are his and you belong to him. The Reverend Dr. Brian Ketchemeyer of Wittenberg Academy confessing the truth of God's word on the distinction of meats from Article 26 of the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Ketchemeyer, thank you for Always being Always great guest. to be here. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.